123 testing 123 this is radio free mormon on the air broadcasting behind enemy lines tonight's episode the mormon polygamy controversy now there is of course a great deal of controversy that has swirled around the mormon practice of polygamy since the 1830s but the specific controversy i'm going to be dealing with tonight has to do with joseph smith and whether joseph smith actually practiced polygamy or not For many, many years, this was the prime difference between the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Brighamite Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was on the practice of polygamy. The Brighamite faction maintaining that yes, polygamy was from God and did need to be practiced by God's faithful saints as a mark of their devotion and loyalty. The Reorganized Church, on the other hand, maintained that no, polygamy was not from God, that it was an abomination, and that Joseph Smith, the founder of the church, never practiced it at all. What the reorganized church claimed was that Brigham Young was the culprit here, and Brigham Young came up with the idea of practicing polygamy, announced it publicly to the world once they were safely, as he thought, ensconced in the Salt Lake Valley in 1852, and the reorganite position was that Brigham Young lied when he said he got this teaching from Joseph Smith. This dispute between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the reorganized church went on for a century, until in the 1980s when the evidence seemed to be so overwhelming to the reorganites that they caved and finally admitted that yes, Joseph Smith did practice polygamy. So, what's the controversy anymore, you might ask? Well, there were some of the reorganites who did not cotton to that admission by the church leaders and continued to promote the idea, both in writing and in lectures, that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. In fact, Joseph Smith fought against polygamy. And Joseph Smith fought against polygamy is the name of one of the books promoting that viewpoint. Since that time, there has been a surprising uptick in the number of LDS people or formerly LDS people who are adopting this theory. There are several podcasts by people who promote this theory that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy. My understanding is that this has become a tenet of the Denver Snuffer movement, the remnant movement, and new books are coming off the press advocating this idea. One of those books is called The Exoneration of Emma, Joseph, and Hiram by Ronald Meldon Karen, published in 2018. It is a book of some 675 pages in which the author argues that Brigham Young was the culprit who started polygamy, Joseph Smith had nothing to do with it, and that after Joseph Smith died on June 27, 1844, the way was open for Brigham Young to take leadership of the main body of the church and institute the polygamy that Brigham Young had introduced into the church himself. Now, one of the critical areas of this argument has to do with section 132. Now, as you know, section 132 is in the Doctrine and Covenants. It is, or purports to be, the revelation received by Joseph Smith from God in 1843, commanding Joseph Smith to enter into the practice of polygamy. So, obviously, if section 132 was really written or received by and then dictated by Joseph Smith, that's a problem for those who would deny that Joseph Smith practiced or taught polygamy. And therefore, it has become necessary for those who believe that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy to say that section 132 was really not written by Joseph Smith, but that this was written by somebody after Joseph Smith's death, likely with the machinations of Brigham Young, and then backdated to Joseph Smith or attributed to Joseph Smith 
Or in regular words, Brigham Young said that Joseph Smith received this revelation when actually Brigham Young received the revelation or wrote it down himself and then lied when he said that Joseph Smith is the one who received the revelation. But if we can date section 132 to having existed before Joseph Smith died, that would make the position that Brigham Young came up with it later untenable. I have been doing some research into this subject and I believe I have come up with the smoking gun that proves conclusively that the revelation contained in section 132 did in fact exist in all material respects prior to Joseph Smith's death. I did this research in preparing for last Wednesday's edition of Mormonism Live with Bill Reel. On that episode, we had Lindsay Hansen Park, who was extremely familiar with the subject of polygamy and in fact for some time has been doing her own podcast on the subject titled A Year in Polygamy. During the course of that show, I presented a few of the items of this research that I had done and Lindsay Hansen Park was very excited about it. According to her, nobody had ever done this type of research or analysis before. She said she thought it was very important and needed a wider audience, and therefore, I am presenting an extended version of that research on today's Radio Free Mormon podcast. And the way I'm going to go about proving my case is actually very simple. It involves the Nauvoo Expositor. Now, the Nauvoo Expositor, as pretty much everybody knows who's listening to this podcast, was published in Nauvoo on June 7, 1844, during Joseph Smith's lifetime. In that one and only edition of the Nauvoo Expositor were published three affidavits from people who claimed to have seen the revelation on plural marriage that would eventually become section 132. Making the issue more cloudy is that section 132 was not published in any newspaper during Joseph Smith's lifetime. I mean, the whole idea was to keep the practice a secret, so of course it's not going to be published anywhere. And the first time section 132 was published in the Doctrine and Covenants was not until the 1876 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, 32 years after Joseph Smith died. So the argument from the other side is that this gave Brigham Young plenty of time to gin up some kind of pretended revelation, put it in Joseph Smith's mouth, and then have it published in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1876. But even though Brigham Young obviously had the opportunity to do such a thing, the three affidavits in the Nauvoo Expositor controvert the idea that Brigham Young actually did do such a thing. Those three affidavits that were published in the Nauvoo Expositor were written by William Law, Jane Law, and Austin Cowles. Now, William Law had been a member of the first presidency of the LDS Church. He was the second counselor in the first presidency, Joseph Smith, of course, being the president of the first presidency, and William Law was the second counselor in the first presidency from January 24, 1841 until April 18, 1844, when he was excommunicated. So that is over three years that William Law was in the first presidency. He was definitely in a position to hear and observe and be aware of decisions being made at the top level of the church by Joseph Smith. Jane Law was the wife of William Law, and the third person, Austin Cowles, was a member, or had been a member, of the Nauvoo High Council. All three of these individuals left affidavits in the June 7, 1844 edition of the Nauvoo Expositor. So, what we can tell from this, first of all, is that we know, because the Nauvoo Expositor was published on June 7, 1844, and that these affidavits are contained in that Nauvoo Expositor, that the affidavits must have been written prior to the date 
of the newspaper in which those affidavits appeared. So we can conclusively determine that all three of these affidavits were written before June 7, 1844, which means they were written before Joseph Smith died on June 27th of that same month, June 1844. These three affidavits are very brief. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the contents of these affidavits, which we can date to before June 7, 1844, and compare it with the contents of section 132 as we have it today. What I think we will see is that section 132, as it exists today, was seen by and described by all three of these people who wrote the affidavits because they describe it with sufficient detail that we can effectively match it up to section 132 as it is printed in today's Doctrine and Covenants and as it was printed in the 1876 version of the Doctrine and Covenants. First, let's go to the William Law Affidavit. Here's what he has to say. I hereby certify that Hiram Smith, that's Joseph Smith's brother, that Hiram Smith did in his office read to me a certain written document, which he said was a revelation from God. He said that he was with Joseph when it was received. He afterwards gave me the document to read, and I took it to my house and read it and showed it to my wife and returned it the next day. So that serves as his basis for knowing what is in this revelation, as well as for his wife Jane, whose affidavit will follow right after William Law's affidavit. William Law goes on. The revelation, so-called, he puts in parentheses, the revelation, so-called, authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time, in this world and in the world to come. It said this was the law, and he emphasizes the word law in italics. It said this was the law and commanded Joseph to enter into the law, once again emphasized by italics, and also that he should administer to others. Several other items were in the Revelation supporting the above doctrines, and then that's signed and attested to by William Law. So as I say, it's a rather brief affidavit, but nevertheless, it gives us some information that we can use to compare to section 132. First, William Law says that the Revelation authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time. Well, this certainly matches with the generic description of section 132. And while it is definitely a broad description that matches 132, it is not very particularized. But he goes on with more particularized details. William Law states that the revelation authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time in this world and in the world to come. William Law uses that expression. Now, when we look at section 132, we find that expression repeated several times. For instance, in verse 15, it states, Therefore, if a man marry him a wife in the world, and he marry her not by me nor by my word, and he covenant with her so long as he is in the world, see, there's that expression, and she with him, their covenant and marriage are not a force when they are dead and when they are out of the world. Therefore, they are not bound by any law when they are out of the world. And then verse 16 starts with another reference to this. Therefore, when they are out of the world, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So there's four instances of this expression in the world or out of the world just in those two verses alone. Going on to verse 18, we find the same expression two times there, stating that if a man does not marry his wife for time and eternity, and it's not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, then it is not valid, neither a force when they are out of the world, because they are not joined by me, saith the Lord, neither by my word. When they are out of the world, it cannot be received there. So there's the two mentions in verse 18. It goes on to be mentioned again in verse 19, and twice again 
in verse 30. So we skip there from verse 19 to verse 30, where it appears twice. And in verse 30, it states, Abraham received promises concerning his seed and of the fruit of his loins, from whose loins ye are, namely, my servant Joseph, which were to continue so long as they were in the world. And as touching Abraham and his seed, out of the world they should continue, both in the world and out of the world. So we have it four times mentioned in verse 30. Now, remembering that when this affidavit was made by William Law, as well as the other two affiants, they did not have the revelation in front of them. Instead, they are simply remembering what it was that was in the revelation they were permitted to read. And we can see that when William Law says that the revelation authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time in this world and in the world to come, he seems to be reflecting accurately the contents of these verses from section 132. And once again, those are verses 15, 16, 18, 19, and verse 30. But that's not the only detail William Law gives us. He also talks about this revelation containing the law. And he mentions the law twice in his affidavit, and he emphasizes the word law both times. So it is apparent that William Law was very much impressed by the fact that this revelation he says he read talked about plural marriage as a law. Once again, William Law's affidavit described the revelation as saying, this was the law and commanded Joseph to enter into the law. I went back through section 132 to find references to the expression of polygamy being the law and was overwhelmed to find that it is mentioned in section 132 at least 30 times. Once again, reference to polygamy as the law is made at least 30 times in section 132, which may be why it is that William Law remembered it so clearly and placed it in emphasis by italics in his affidavit. I am not going to read all of the instances of the law because I basically be reading half of section 132, but I will read a few for illustrative purposes, starting in verse 3. Therefore, prepare thy heart to receive. This is God speaking to Joseph Smith. Therefore, prepare thy heart to receive and obey the instructions, which I am about to give unto you, for all those who have this law revealed unto them must obey the same. Then verse 5. For all who will have a blessing at my hands shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing. Verse 6. And as pertaining to the new and everlasting covenant, it was instituted for the fullness of my glory. And he that receiveth the fullness thereof must and shall abide the law, or shall be damned, saith the Lord God. Verse 7. And verily I say unto you that the conditions of this law are these. And then it goes on to state the conditions. If we go down to verse 11, we find a reference to the law there. Also again in verse 12. Verse 15 talks about the law. So does verse 17. Verse 18 mentions it. Verse 19 says, And again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, etc. Verse 21 contains a reference to the law, as do verse 24 and verse 25. Verse 27 picks up the theme. Verse 28 has another reference. Verse 31 has a reference to the law. 32 has a reference to the law, which says, Go ye therefore and do the works of Abraham. Enter ye into my law, and ye shall be saved. Verse 33 says, But if you enter not into my law, ye cannot receive the promise of my father, which he made unto Abraham. Verse 34 says, God commanded Abraham, and Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife. And why did she do it? Because this was the law. Verse 37 
goes on to talk about the law. So does verse 48, verse 54, verse 58, verse 59, verse 61, verse 62. Verse 64 has two references. Verse 65 has two references. And finally, verse 66, the very last verse of section 132. It contains 66 verses. And in verse 66, the final verse, it says, and now as pertaining to this law, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will reveal more unto you hereafter. Therefore, let this suffice for the present. Behold, I am Alpha and Omega. Amen. So with no less than 30 references to plural marriage as being the law in section 132, it is little wonder not only that this was a detail that William Law remembered and placed in his affidavit, but it also explains why it was that he repeated the word law twice and each time put the word law in italics for emphasis. Once again, William Law said, the revelation said this was the law and commanded Joseph to enter into the law. And the last detail that William Law gives us in his affidavit is when he says, and also that he, Joseph Smith, should administer to others. So in other words, Joseph Smith is not the only one commanded to enter into the practice of plural marriage, but also the revelation that William Law read said that Joseph should administer the practice of plural marriage to others. We find this in verse 44 of section 132. Verse 44 starts talking about the rules of plural marriage and what happens if one or the other member of the plural marriage commits adultery. Verse 44 says, And if she hath not committed adultery, but is innocent, and hath not broken her vow, and she knoweth it, and I reveal it unto you, my servant Joseph, then shall you have power by the power of my holy priesthood to take her and give her unto him that hath not committed adultery. See how that talks about Joseph Smith administering this practice to others? And then in verse 46, it says, And verily, verily, I say unto you that whatsoever you seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth in my name and by my word, saith the Lord, it shall be eternally bound in the heavens. And whosoever sins you remit, on earth shall be remitted eternally in the heavens, and whosoever sins you retain on earth shall be retained in heaven. And then in verse 48, and again, verily I say unto you, my servant Joseph, that whatsoever you give on earth and to whomsoever you give anyone on earth by my word and according to my law, it shall be visited with blessings and not cursings. So we can see that this additional detail also shows up in section 132. William Law's affidavit gives four details regarding the revelation that William Law must have seen prior to June 7th of 1844. And those are that the revelation authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time. Number two, that those certain men could have more wives than one at a time in this world and in the world to come. Number three, that it was called the law and commanded Joseph to enter into the law. And also that Joseph Smith should administer this practice of plural marriage to others. So we see that every single detail in this affidavit by William Law can be found in section 132. And not only that, William Law gets nothing wrong in his affidavit. In other words, he gives no description about this revelation he says that he was shown that does not match section 132. So this is not a practice of Texas sharpshooting, focusing only on the hits and ignoring the misses. There are no misses as far as William Law's affidavit goes. And we'll find that the same is true for the other two affidavits, the one by Jane Law and the other one by Austin Cowles. But this brings us now to the affidavit by Jane Law published as well in the Nauvoo Expositor, June 7, 1844. 
Here is what Jane Law says. I certify that I read the revelation referred to in the above affidavit of my husband. It sustained in strong terms the doctrine of more wives than one at a time, in this world and in the next. It authorized some to have the number of ten, and set forth that those women who would not allow their husbands to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before God. Let's compare what Jane Law says in her affidavit to section 132. First, Jane agrees with her husband William that she read the revelation, that it sustained in strongest terms the doctrine of more wives than one at a time, and also added the phrase, in this world and in the next. Well, we've already gone through those details and where they show up in section 132, because those same details appear in William Law's affidavit. But Jane Law gives us a few additional details. The first, she says, is that this revelation authorized some to have to the number of 10 plural wives. And this finds exact correspondence in section 132, starting with verse 62. And if he have 10 virgins given unto him by this law, see, there's the law again, but it says 10 virgins, just like Jane Law says in her affidavit. Verse 62, and if he have 10 virgins given unto him by this law, he cannot commit adultery, for they belong to him, and they are given unto him. Therefore is he justified. It repeats it in the next verse, verse 63. But if one or either of the 10 virgins, after she is espoused, shall be with another man, she has committed adultery. So even this very singular detail mentioned by Jane Law finds reference in section 132. Jane goes on to say that the revelation she read set forth that those women who would not allow their husbands to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before God. This is reflected in the law of Sarah, which comprises the last part of section 132, beginning in verse 54. And I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord. For I am the Lord thy God and will destroy her if she abide not in my law. But the revelation goes on and takes this abhorrent idea about Emma Smith being destroyed if she doesn't accept her husband's practice of plural marriage is coming from God and generalizes it to other women as well. Verse 64, and again, verily, verily, I say unto you, if any man have a wife who holds the keys of this power and he teaches unto her the law of my priesthood as pertaining to these things, then shall she believe and administer unto him or she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord your God for I will destroy her. So what is made specific in verse 54 as to Emma is made general as to any woman who does not accept the teaching of plural marriage. And finally in verse 65, therefore it shall be lawful in me if she receive not this law for him to receive all things whatsoever I the Lord his God will give unto him because she did not believe and administer unto him according to my word. And she then becomes the transgressor. So in these passages, which come at the end of section 132, we see a strong correspondence with what Jane described in her affidavit as the revelation set forth that those women who would not allow their husbands to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before God. Once again, all three of Jane's details are found in section 132, and she does not get any details wrong. She does not mention any details about this revelation she said she read that are not in section 132. 
Finally, we go to the Austin Cowles affidavit. Now, Austin Cowles was a member of the High Council in Nauvoo. And on August 12, 1843, so the story goes, Hiram Smith came to the Nauvoo High Council and read the entire revelation on plural marriage. And this is how Austin Cowles describes it. For as much as the public mind hath been much agitated by a course of procedure in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, by a number of persons declaring against certain doctrines and practices therein, among whom I am one, it is but meet that I should give my reasons, at least in part, as a cause that hath led me to declare myself. In the latter part of the summer, 1843, so this is the August 12th meeting, the patriarch Hiram Smith did in the high council of which I was a member introduce what he said was a revelation given through the prophet that the said Hiram Smith did essay to read the said revelation in the said council, that according to his reading, there was contained the following doctrines. First, the sealing up of persons to eternal life against all sins, save that of shedding innocent blood or of consenting thereto. Second, the doctrine of a plurality of wives, or marrying virgins, that David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sinned not save in the matter of Uriah. This revelation, with other evidence that the aforesaid heresies were taught and practiced in the church, determined me to leave the office of first counselor in the president of the church at Nauvoo, and that would be the state president of the church at Nauvoo, inasmuch as I dared not teach or administer such laws, and further, deponent saith not. So let's compare Austin Cowell's affidavit with Doctrine and Covenants section 132. He gives us two additional details that were not mentioned by William or Jane Law in their affidavits. First, the sealing up of persons to eternal life against all sins, save that of shedding innocent blood or of consenting thereto. This subject is mentioned in section 132 as well, and it's mentioned in verses 19 and 26. Verse 19 states, And again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise, etc., etc., then shall it be written in the Lamb's book of life that he shall commit no murder, whereby to shed innocent blood. And if ye abide in my covenant, and commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood, it shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant hath put upon them in time and through all eternity, and shall be a full force when they are out of the world. And they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things as hath been sealed upon their heads. So verse 19 we can see matches Austin Cowell's recollection of this document where he says it dealt with the sealing up of persons to eternal life against all sins, save that of shedding innocent blood or of consenting thereto. We find the same language in verse 26. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man marry a wife according to my word, and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, according to mine appointment, and he or she shall commit any sin or transgression of the new and everlasting covenant, whatever, and all manner of blasphemies. And if they commit no murder wherein they shed innocent blood, yet they shall come forth in the first resurrection and enter into their exaltation. And verse 27 has the same phrase, the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which shall not be forgiven in the world nor out of the world, is in that ye commit murder wherein ye shed innocent blood and assent unto my death. 
So once again, verses 19 in section 132, as well as verses 26 and 27, find direct correspondence with this detail mentioned in Austin Cowell's affidavit, that the revelation involved the sealing up of persons to eternal life against all sins, save that of shedding innocent blood, or of consenting thereto. The second detail we find in Austin Cowell's affidavit is this, the doctrine of a plurality of wives or marrying virgins that David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sin not, save in the matter of Uriah. And we find that exact expression contained in section 132 today, going to verses 38 and 39 of section 132. David also received many wives and concubines, and also Solomon, and Moses my servants, as also many others of my servants from the beginning of creation until this time. And in nothing did they sin, save in those things which they received not of me. Verse 39, David's wives and concubines were given unto him of me by the hand of Nathan my servant and others of the prophets who had the keys of this power. And in none of these things did he sin against me, save in the case of Uriah and his wife. So the second detail that Austin Cowles gives us in his affidavit finds exact matches in the language of section 132. And finally, Austin Cowles seems to equate the doctrine of plurality of wives that he read in this revelation, the doctrine of plurality of wives with the marrying of virgins. Because what he says is, second, the doctrine of a plurality of wives or marrying virgins. Once again, In the final section of section 132, there is mention of marrying virgins. And in fact, that appears to be the only type of woman, whatever virgin might mean in the context of this revelation, that is the only type of woman or the only way a woman is described who is eligible to be married polygamously. Verse 61, and again, as pertaining to the law of the priesthood, if any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another and the first give her consent, And if he espoused the second, and they are virgins, see that's important, and have vowed to no other man, then is he justified. Verse 62, remember how Jane Law talked about up to the number of 10? Well, it's 10 virgins. Verse 62, and if he have 10 virgins given unto him by this law, he cannot commit adultery, for they belong to him and they are given unto him. Therefore is he justified. And finally, verse 63, but if one or either of the 10 virgins after she is espoused, shall be with another man she has committed adultery and shall be destroyed. So each of the three details that we get in Austin Cowell's affidavit, we find reflected and even mirrored in section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And once again, let me state for the record, Austin Cowell's gets nothing wrong. None of these affiants, neither William Law, Jane Law, or Austin Cowell's, get any details wrong. And by wrong, I mean they mention no details in what they say they read in this document that are not reflected in section 132. And if you take all three of these affidavits and put them together, it covers every salient aspect of section 132. And on top of that, it even quotes some of the exact language in section 132. So let me summarize briefly. The three affidavits of William Law, Jane Law, and Austin Cowles appear in the June 7, 1844 edition of the Nauvoo Expositor. 
William Law's affidavit says that the revelation authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time. That's certainly correct. Number two, that the revelation allowed for more wives than one in this world and in the world to come. And we find that phrase repeated in section 132. William Law said that the revelation referred to the practice of plural marriage as the law and commanded Joseph to enter into the law. That expression is found at least 30 times in section 132 from the beginning to the end. And finally, that the revelation said that Joseph Smith should administer this practice of plural marriage to other people. And we saw how that is also referenced in Doctrine and Covenants section 132. In the Jane Law Affidavit, she repeats what William says about the revelation dealing with having more wives than one at a time in this world and in the next. She adds the detail about how the revelation authorized some to have to the number of 10, and we saw how that was reflected exactly in section 132. And Jane goes on to say the revelation, quote, set forth that those women who would not allow their husbands to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before God. That is also found in the last part of section 132. Austin Cowles mentions the detail that the revelation dealt with the sealing up of persons to eternal life against all sins, save that of shedding innocent blood or of consenting thereto. That idea is found in section 132, verses 19 and 26. Austin Cowles adds that the doctrine of a plurality of wives or marrying virgins, that David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sin not, save in the matter of Uriah. We find that exact concept and even those exact words in verses 38 and 39 of section 132. And finally, Austin Cowles seems to equate the doctrine of plurality of wives with the marrying of virgins, as he says was contained in this revelation. And we find indeed that section 132 does exactly that in the final three verses. So from the very beginning, all the way through, and up to the very end of section 132, we find three affidavits that mention every single salient detail that is contained in section 132. And yet, these affidavits were published in a newspaper on June 7th, 1844. So we know that there's no way that anybody could have gone behind the scenes and changed the language of the newspaper or changed the language of the affidavits that were printed in the newspaper. That is simply not possible. So what we can take from this is that three individuals claim to have seen the revelation on plural marriage, we know that these three people published affidavits containing details as to what they claim they saw in this revelation on plural marriage. And we know that they made these claims prior to June 7th, 1844, when those affidavits were published in the Nauvoo Expositor. We have seen that the details in these affidavits match in all material respects what is contained in the modern day version of section 132. And from all of this, I think the evidence is overwhelming that there did exist a revelation that was seen by William Law, that was seen by Jane Law, that was seen by Austin Cowles prior to June 7th of 1844 during the lifetime of Joseph Smith, which matched in every material respect what we have today in section 132. From this, I must conclude that section 132 or a document in all material respects identical to section 132 was in existence during Joseph Smith's lifetime. This is not a document that was created after Joseph Smith's death and then pawned off on him as if he were the original author. That option is now off the table. That position seems to me untenable. 
there did exist a revelation on plural marriage in Joseph Smith's lifetime, and that revelation matched in every material respect what we have today as section 132. So I think that those who want to continue to promote the idea that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy and that section 132 is a document that was created after Joseph Smith's death are going to have to deal with the three affidavits in the Nauvoo Expositor and the analysis that has been presented on this show demonstrating the contrary. In short, this analysis completely dismantles one of the primary tenets of those who would deny that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. I am very excited to have been able to discover and present this research and analysis on this important issue as it relates to the introduction of polygamy in early Mormonism, whether that was done by Joseph Smith or whether by Brigham Young. I plan on taking this research, making it into a written paper, and submitting it to appropriate scholarly publications for review and possible publication therein, as Lindsay Hansen Park has encouraged me to do. I find the subject of Mormonism to be endlessly fascinating, and as I have said before, there is nothing I enjoy so much as making a substantive contribution to the scholarly discussion of Mormonism. If you appreciate what you hear at Radio Free Mormon, please take the time, if you have not already, to go to RadioFreeMormon.org, that's RadioFreeMormon.org, today. Click on the donate button and make a donation. If you can make a monthly donation of $5 a month, that's all I ask from my listeners. If you can do more, $10 a month, $20 a month, I will not say the nay, but $5 a month is all I ask. I will tell you that as I have transferred over from the practice of law into full-time podcasting, unfortunately, the donations have gone down 10%. So considering that now I am living off donations and your donations put food on the table and keep the lights on, I need all hands on deck and respectfully request that if you have not donated before, please donate today. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.